We're in the midst of this series, and I appreciate uh, Roger and Chad mentioning, of living hope in a wishing world. If we're going to be people about a, a living hope, that is the idea not simply that our hope, which is in Jesus Christ, is a living Lord and Savior, amen, but it is that we are called to be people who live in a way that reflects the hope that God has planted in people's hearts in reality since the very beginning. As soon as they were cast out of the garden, God said, no, someday that serpent's head is going to be crushed. As soon as he called Abraham, he said, there is more in store, not just for you, but for all of mankind. When the kings of Israel sat on the throne, the the hope and promise was is that God would use them to, to bring about a better world, not just for Israel, but for everyone who would turn to the Lord. And of course, summarized in Jesus Christ, who came and didn't simply live passively and sort of reclusively until that moment when he get to, got to, went to the cross. Jesus lived abundantly. He interacted with all kinds of people and particularly loved to interact with people who seemed to need the most hope. He made his world a different place. And if we're to follow in his footsteps, we need to be a people that live into that hope. Today, we're going to begin the process of looking at several lessons over the next few weeks that begin to reach for the implications of what is it to not be the kind of people that the world sort of wishes, we wish the world would be better, but the kind of people who understand that the hope that God has for all of us is not simply some sort of spiritualistic salvation of our souls, but in reality is a great redemption, a great redemption for We ourselves, for the church, Peter pointed to a passage particularly where God talks about bringing all things together in a great judgment where we we understand that, that we've allied ourselves with God. But that hope leaks out into so many different things. The passage that Caden read points to the idea in the midst of chapter 8, which is about living in the Holy Spirit, is that Holy Spirit living is not simply about me figuring out how to get my stuff right, but it is me living in a way so that the world begins to be transformed into more and more of what God would have it be. That story goes all the way back to the very beginning. Genesis tells us two stories. I would say that one of those stories is the creation from the perspective of heaven. God looking down on what he's creating and how it's going from there. The second story that we're going to read is much more about the view of the creation from earth. From where you and I live. From the perspective of the that which was created and looking at what God is doing. These are some excerpts from chapter 2. I'd encourage you to read along with me. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. When they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. 
No shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river in the garden that watered the garden and flowed from Eden. And there it was separated into four headwaters. And the story goes on again from the earthly perspective to kind of point to the way those rivers moved into all parts of the world, all directions, the points of the compass. What came from Eden filled up the whole world. And skipping down to verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden because he had a purpose for him. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Won't you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, it is our desire to live into your great hope. It is our desire to see things the way that you see them. It is our desire that we don't simply see the reality of the brokenness of this world, but the hope that you have for each of us, for us collectively, and in reality for all the heavens and the earth. Father, may our lives make a difference because we follow you. And we want to be people who in every aspect of our life and in every way that we live are in concert, in sync, are harmonizing with what you want. Father, as we look at these early stories the way you created and your purpose in creation and your blessing on creation. We pray that our hearts will be stirred to live a little more for you and with you, filled with your Holy Spirit in the living hope that you're coming again to make all things new. We thank you for Jesus. In the way he is the first fruit of that great hope. And it is in his name that we all pray and we all say. So the chapter 1 story basically is summarized in this way. God saw all that he had made. And, he, and it was very good. It is a tendency on our part as humankind to kind of point towards that sixth day of creation. In fact the last half of the sixth day of creation. He created man in his image, male and female. He created them. And we, and we think, oh, that was so good. Men, we particularly say, we are sure glad you created women. Somebody say amen. amen. I'm not sure that the women always say they're thankful that he created man, but that's beside the point. God doesn't simply say, Oh, that last thing I did. I'm sure glad I got that last part right because that's what's good. God said, from all the way reaching back to the day one, when some 
way in which the forces of light and darkness were separated. And God said, darkness, you're not going to have rain where I don't want you to have rain. I am in charge. And all the way through, the sun, moon, and stars, the waters being gathered together, the flora and fauna coming forth on the dry land, and the animals, the, 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 the things that fly in the seas above and the things that swim in the seas below, all are part. The whole thing. Not just the little part that was in Eden. Yes, there's a garden there, and yes, it's special. But all that he created, he stood back. And, and our, our focus may be that we see him standing back from this little blue planet in, the, in, the, in our solar system, in the Milky Way, and said it's good, but in reality his expansive view is of all of creation and all of the universe. It is... How did he say it? Well, that's okay. How did he say it? The question, to a certain extent, is in a hopeful life, do you look at it all and say, very good. The second story ends differently. Again, a heaven view, looking down, wow, this is great. The second view is, to a certain extent, from the perspective of humankind. Again, notice that the humans aren't just spoken into existence. The humans are intricately formed by the hand of God himself. He molded. He then takes the rib and molds again and says, Woo! Yes. And the man sees himself in relationship with God not just in the good creation, but particularly right there in the heart of the good creation, that Garden of Eden where God put him. And we could kind of say, just don't mess it up. Except that's not what it says. What it says is he put him there to work it, to manage it, to make it become fertile and fruitful. To be part of what made the Garden of Eden good, man is there. Man is there to work it and take care of it. The second story is beautiful in that it engages us in the creative work of God. Not just in the idea that we somehow or another achieve a moral life that is transformed by the Spirit and somehow that is separated from our life in this world, but that even our engagement with the world is part of what God, the good that God created at the very beginning. And I would say, therefore, it is part of the hope and the way that we live into the hope that God has for us. Notice that we turn the page and you've read your Bibles enough or at least you know the story enough to know that it changes dramatically when we turn the page. Brokenness of sin enters and everything everything changes. And the verses we're going to read indicate that not only did brokenness of sin change humanity, but it changed the creation itself. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Because you did that, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it 
all the days of your life. It, the ground, the good ground that I created, done the way that I wanted it to be done, will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will still eat the plants of the field, but it will be through great toil. See, the tragedy that follows is not limited to humankind itself. And so it is that Romans 8 and several other passages, you can read in Ephesians chapter 1 about verse 8, you can look in Colossians chapter 1 verse 7 and 9, and Paul talks about the way the whole creation, heaven and earth, everything is invested in what God is doing. And Romans chapter 8 probably says it most eloquently. The creation waits in eager expectation. Not simply that God will return and make it all right, but waits for the children of God to be revealed. That that as we become who God wants us to be, it has an impact beyond just our very lives and has an impact beyond humankind itself. We're part of what God is doing And only God can ultimately accomplish in bringing about what He hopes, not just for our individual lives and not just in the sense of a a disembodied spirit or soul that He's redeemed. But He wants to redeem everything, all of it. What is it to participate in a hope that isn't just about, I want to get saved, but that I want to be part of everything that God has been doing from the very beginning and that He will bring about in His new heaven and new earth when He recreates everything. First of all, let's be sure and say, none of us can redeem ourselves. Somebody say amen to that. None of us are the ones who make ourselves what God wants us to be. It is the blood of Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen. And in the same way, you and I are not called to be the salvation of all creation. I have absolutely no idea the way that God is going to remake all of the universe, but I have a feeling that I'm not going to be able to lift a single finger to help get that done. Secondly, I want to be sure and point to, this may be a confusing lesson, and I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to say that this is easy stuff. I don't have all the answers of the way the creation gets redeemed, the way the creation is waiting for God to make it all whole again. I don't know how those specifics all fit together. I just know that it seems to be something that God is pointing from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, to the very end, Revelations 20 and 21. A new heaven and a new earth. Not just me and you floating around in some sort of place disembodied spirits and souls. In the same way that we can't accomplish our own redemption, we need to recognize that we're not not the ones that are going to, quote, quote, unquote, save the world. This will happen through God's transformation. You may be pointing to passages in your brain. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Alan. I know that the Bible says it's all going to be burned up. It's all going to go away in a great tumultuous end. To a certain extent, I would, I would challenge you and be glad to continue a conversation that most of those passages are pointing towards in the same way that before we can put on a glorious body, like Jesus' glorious body, we're going to go through a process of death and dying. And the 
fleshly stuff will be consumed in its own way. It may be most of those passages that, are, that you would quote to me about, it's all going to be burned up, is more, less about a destroying burning up and more about the same way that the Bible talks about the refining fire that you put precious metals in to make them even better. You've experienced that in your life, haven't you? Where struggles and difficulties come and the purpose, or at least the way that God can use them, is that he brings us through a fire into a place where we are more of the person that he wants us to be. We are not going to be the ones who make it all happen. But I think we do and we can participate and live again in sync with God, live in concert with God in all of life. So you may ask, so Alan is what you're talking about, just pulling weeds or picking up trash? Well, it isn't. And it is. It would be incongruous for us to walk up to someone in need and, and, and participate in their lives and love them in a way that, that brings help and transformation to their life and then immediately turn around and say walk up to a beautiful painting and take spray paint and spray over the top of it. It would be incongruous for us to be people who say, I am working for the transformation of the Spirit in my life and then to step out into God's good creation and create havoc through pollution and create havoc by not tending to what He's given us to tend to. So make no mistakes, it's not just about pulling weeds and it's not just about picking up trash, which we should be doing. Did God create it to be trashed by humankind? And the answer is, God created man to come in and work it and care for it. And that has a multitude of implications that, by the way, are not easy to work through. But we need to recognize that even when, Peter, I did not set up Peter to talk about mowing the yard. I just want to be sure that's heard. This is not true everywhere, but in our climate, in our kind of grass, do you know one of the reasons that you mow the lawn? Somebody says to get really hot and sweaty and dirty. You mow the lawn because it helps control the weeds. The beneficial grass is blessed by keeping the weeds from continually growing. Now, do I mow the grass because I say, Lord, I want to... I start, but when I turn on the mower, I say, Lord, bless me as I bring about your good creation. I don't. But I'm trying to help you see that there are little things that you do in your life, all parts of your life, that either contribute towards being consistent with what God wants in the world or are contrary to what God wants in the world. Pick up your trash. Pull your weeds. Somebody's going to point out, wait a minute, blue bonnets are weeds. So be selective. But the other half of the sentence also has to be true. Are we working 
at not tolerating injustice anywhere that we find it. Because we want God's new creation to at least be glimpsed in the things that we do right here and right now here on earth. I don't know, did you, did, you, did you sing the song before I got up to preach? Did you sing along with me? You sounded like you did. I mean, it was really pretty cool to hear you sing. Joining with the creation to say, beautiful is our God. Have you ever heard that song that way? That's what the chorus is. The line before the chorus is, the universe will say. And so we join with the universe in saying, beautiful is our God. And I want to say to you, I don't know all the ways you can accomplish this, because the universe says, beautiful is our God by shining the way God created it to shine. A snow-covered mountain standing there and saying, look at what the hand that created me. When you get off into a really dark place at nighttime and there's no clouds and you look up and see the stars and the stars themselves simply say, beautiful is our God. How are you going to contribute? As the creation that God seemed to wait to the very last to put his greatest touch, here is the image of God. And now I want to be beautiful for God. I want to be sure and point out, guys, that's not about all the bodybuilding you can do and tight t-shirts that you can wear so that you can be beautiful for God. I thought I'd pick on the guys first. Ladies, it's not about putting a little more lipstick on so you can be beautiful for God. Those are things that pass away. How can we be beautiful for God and contribute to the beauty, not just that our life is, but that the whole world sees around us? And if that's loving someone who a lot of people have a hard time loving, and excuse me for being this simplistic, but about taking the little piece of ground that God has given me on this earth and doing everything to make it say, look what God can do. We'll never get to everything, of course. But something. Are we contributing to the beauty that the world sees? The beauty of God that the world sees in everything that we do. Because that is the hope not the only and not the ultimate, but it is a foreshadowing and an echo of the great hope of what God wants to accomplish. There is only one who makes it completely right again, amen? And while I'm not finished yet, and you may say amen to that as well, I trust the one who is transforming me. I trust him to continue to work and to not give up and to make what he hopes for in me formed more and more every single day. 
I don't know what you're depending on to make the real hopes in your life come to fruition. But I can tell you, there is no one that is more trustworthy. In fact, for the real hopes in life, there's no one other than our great God. I invite you to stand.